Just a minute. I need to take a drink before we go any further. So, <laughs> cool. I like it. It's better than getting poured over my uh, shoulders or something when I'm not looking. I keep you in my sights today. So uh, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for being here with us. We thank you that you are our God, uh, that you have promised to be here with your people. And uh, Lord, we know that we need your help to recognize you here in this place. Uh, Lord, our prayer is that uh, not a single one of us would go home today uh, precisely the same as we were when we arrived, that we would be changed, that we would be renewed, that we'd be challenged and restored and given new life in ways that we couldn't predict because, because we have met you in this place. Make this holy ground through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Philippians chapter 3 today. Philippians chapter 3. And uh, we will look at uh, a um, majority of this chapter, beginning at verse 1. Whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, may the Lord give you joy. I never get tired of telling you this. I am doing this for your own good. And then he says, with tremendous love and affection, watch out for those dogs, those wicked men and their evil deeds, uh, those mutilators who say that you must be circumcised to be saved. This is a controversy that we're not going to address today. Uh, For we who worship God in the spirit are the only ones who are truly circumcised. Uh, We put no confidence in human effort. Instead, we boast about what Christ Jesus has done for us. Then he says in verse 4, Yet I could could have confidence in myself if anyone could. In other words, if anybody could boast, it's me. If others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. For I was circumcised when I was eight days old, having been born into a pure-blooded Jewish family that is a branch of the tribe of Benjamin. He has the right pedigree. So I am a real Jew, if ever there was one. And what's more, he says, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. In zealous, yes. In fact, I harshly persecuted the church, and I obeyed the Jewish law so carefully that I was never accused of any fault. I once thought all of these things were so very important, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have discarded everything else, counted it all as garbage, so that I may have Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own goodness or my ability to obey God's law, but I trust Christ to save me. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. As a result, I can really know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I can learn what it means to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that somehow I can experience the resurrection from the dead. And then he says this, I don't mean to say that I have already achieved these things or that I have already attained perfection, but I keep working towards the day when I will finally be all that Christ Jesus saved me for and wants me to be. No, dear brothers and sisters, I am still not all I should be, but I am focusing all of my energies on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. 
I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us up to heaven. I hope all of you who are mature Christians will agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. But we must be sure to obey the truth we have learned already. Dear brothers and sisters, he says, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I've told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross. Their future is eternal destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things. And all they think about in this life here on earth is this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. We are eagerly waiting for him to return as our Savior. He will take these weak, mortal bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same mighty power that he will use to conquer everything and everywhere. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. (coughs) So we have been... uh, Uh, starting a new series together um, called A Walk on the Dark Side, Telling Our Stories About. And we are telling our stories about uh, some of the aspects of human life, human experience uh, that are darker, uh, more painful, uh, less pleasant. Uh, And we're learning to think about those stories uh, through the lens of the grace that we see, we receive in Christ. So last week we talked about our stories of shame. Uh, shame is uh, described by the Apostle Paul as ungodly sorrow. Uh, and he says that shame ultimately leads to death. It isolates us, it defeats us, and it kills us. Uh, and so last week we looked at shame. And today we're going to look at uh, a really closely related idea uh, as Alyssa said, we're talking about perfectionism. And in just a few minutes, uh, we'll talk about the relationship between shame and perfectionism. Now, as we uh, think about this topic, uh, it's actually come up in a number of conversations sort of inadvertently this week. And uh, one of the things that we have to uh, come to grips with whenever we open the scriptures to study a topic uh, is uh, um, we have to think about what sort of book the Bible is. Uh, We want the Bible to fundamentally be sort of a download of truth from heaven. Uh, We want the Bible uh, to just sort of be a list of rules and instructions with a ton of clarity, uh, a ton of uh, specificity, so that uh, we can go to the Bible, read the instruction, and perfectly follow it. Right? We want the Bible to do that for us. However, the Bible doesn't always behave that way. And so when we talk about perfection, uh, that's one of the places where we discover that the Bible becomes a little bit unruly. Uh, The Bible can be a little bit confusing sometimes. Uh, The Bible sometimes even contradicts itself. Uh, The Bible comes and says to us uh, here with Paul and says, uh, I'm not perfect. He says, I know that I'm not perfect. He says, in fact, I used to think that I was perfect. Now I know that I'm not perfect because I've met the perfect standard that is Christ. I know that I'm not perfect. He says, I'm going to strain for perfection, but I know that it won't be until I finally reach heaven that I'm perfected. 
He says, I know that I'm not perfect, and perfection isn't my goal. It's straining to the end of the uh, end of the day when I finally will reach the end of uh, my life and then attain to the perfection that only Christ can give to me. And he says, look, if, if you don't believe that, uh, if you're not a mature Christian and you don't think that way, that's all right. God will, God will straighten you out. He says, we should all think that way. Perfection isn't your goal. So that's one word from the Bible about perfectionism. And some of you are sitting here thinking, ah, I know that there's something else about perfection in the Bible. Some of you are thinking about um, some words that we find in the Gospel of Matthew uh, in no less significant a passage than the Sermon on the Mount, where no less significant a person than Jesus himself comes and says, what? What does he say? What does Jesus say about perfection? He says this, I want you to be perfect. Be perfect. And the tense, the grammar that he uses is that it's a now command. Begin to be perfect right now. Be perfect as God in heaven is perfect. And so we're stuck. The Bible isn't behaving well. Which one is it? Are we supposed to be perfect starting now, like Jesus says? Or do we say with Paul, who thinks if you don't agree with him, God will straighten us out anyway, that I'm not perfect and I'll only reach perfection in the end? It's almost as if the Bible wants us, rather than simply coming to a download of truth with instructions to follow, to sit with that tension, to sit with that challenge, that conundrum, and to wrestle with that before God. And and the point of Scripture is always to push us into the presence of God with our deeper questions and our deeper struggles and our deeper wrestling. We hold that question before God. It's a paradox to both be perfect and not be perfect at the same time. How do you do a paradox perfectly? Instead of solving that particular mystery this morning, I'm going to commend that to you for your own wrestling. And instead, we're going to talk about two aspects of perfectionism. First of all, we're going to talk about the problem of perfectionism. And then secondly, we're going to talk about the possibility of being imperfectly perfect. The problem of perfectionism and then the possibility of being imperfectly perfect. So number one, what is the problem with perfectionism? Uh, Before we go any further, sometimes when we're trying to dial in on what something means, it's helpful to compare and contrast it with something else that's close in meaning but not precisely the same. So I want to compare perfectionism with excellence. Uh, I know many, many, many of us in this room Uh, work in the medical field. And in the medical field, um, uh, excellence, the pursuit of excellence, is often a matter of life and death. Uh, Pursuing excellence is really, really important. It's not okay to say, oh, I'm not a perfectionist, I'm not pursuing perfectionism, Uh, and so therefore, almost the right medicine is good enough. We don't believe that. Uh, We don't say, close to the right procedure, we'll probably get the job done. Um, some of us work in fields where there's a lot of stress, a lot of pressure, and if we are not excellent at our work, if we are not excellent on a sales call, if we are not excellent in the negotiation, I might lose a sale, I might lose an account, I might lose a client, I might go out of business. As parents, I want to be really clear. Mediocrity is not the goal. 
right? Uh, the whole point here is not to strive to be a marginal parent. Uh, one of the reasons that uh, Pastor Brad is organizing and facilitating a, uh, a, a day to think about dealing with challenging uh, behaviors in children is because we want parents and teachers and grandparents and all of us to have excellence in the way that we interact with kids. The stakes are high. Excellence is really important in lots of arenas of our lives. On the other hand, perfectionism does something different than excellence. Perfectionism tells us, compels us, drives us to focus on the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Perfectionism focuses us on the wrong things for the wrong reasons. Look really carefully again at what Paul does in this passage. In verses 5 and 6, he lists his resume of perfection. He has a pedigree of perfection there. He says, all of these things, either I was I received at birth by genetics, by behavior, by diligence, by hard work, all of these things are a part of my life. And he says, and I used to be so very, very proud of these things. This used to be uh, a source of great, great, great pride in my life. And then in verse 7, he comes along, and what does he say? He says, now, I look at all of these things, and he says, huh, it's like a pile of rubbish. I consider it to be nothing. Um, sometimes Paul uses coarse language. Um, the word for rubbish there is probably more accurately uh, translated a dung heap. If I use the shocking language that Paul uses, I would be in trouble. Paul says, I consider it all to be a pile of dung. The thing, the perfectionism, the, the things that I had in my life that were shiny and important and valuable that I pursued, says so now I, I consider it as nothing. I consider it to be nothing. So let me ask you a question. Where is it in your life what do you see in your life where you are investing yourself and expending yourself and pursuing perfection? The wrong things that in the end won't matter all that much. Let me tell you a really embarrassing story about how perfectionism shows up in my life. The, uh, um, there was a season when we were hosting Oasis groups almost every week at our, at our home. And um, if I didn't tell this story, uh, I would get uh, critiqued uh, this afternoon. So I'll be really, really honest with you and tell the story. Uh, we had a season, so our Oasis groups are the small groups uh, that we have here in our congregation. And we would host Oasis groups with a lot of frequency. And every time before the Oasis group was due to arrive at our house, after giving no attention to these things through the week, I would get really hyper-focused, really vigilant, really obsessed uh, with clearing away clutter, piles, clutter, things that are setting out. And I, I, it was just nuts. I would just put things, moving things, hiding things in the bedroom, under blankets, getting rid of, I mean, this is, it's diagnosable. We're the, we're the therapists here, right? I need help. But I would just, I would, you know, clutter goes away, cat hair. I was on patrol for stray cat hair and, and just obsessed. And I would tell myself, that I'm being a good steward, I'm being a good host, I'm serving my guests well. I was focusing on all of those things. And what was actually happening was 
I was becoming somebody who put everybody else in the household on edge. A Tammy who's actually taking care of all of those details gets the message that she's not doing it well enough. Uh, I'm losing things. Things are disappearing left and right. Uh, everybody's on edge. And what happens is Tammy shows up and begins to dread, dread Oasis Group Night. Didn't have my focus on the right thing for the right reason. Back in Matthew's Gospel, there's a collection of Jesus' sayings that we call, as I said before, the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says there, be perfect, as God in heaven is perfect. And if you go back and look at the paragraph that Jesus, uh, where Jesus says those words, what you discover is that Jesus there is talking about loving your enemy. Jesus is saying, I want you to love your enemy. I want you to be patient with people who hurt you. I want you to care for people that disagree with you and don't like you. I want you to love your enemies. And then he says, then be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Isn't it interesting that our perfectionism never ever says, you know what, I'm so proud of the fact that I love my enemies perfectly. I just want everybody to, to notice and hold me accountable for loving my enemies better. Perfectionism doesn't tell me I should be obsessed with loving my neighbor. I don't, I'm not worried about imperfection when it comes to loving my neighbor or loving my enemy. If I was obsessed with loving my neighbor as I was with the piles of clutter in my house, my neighbors would be the most well-loved people in the world. But perfectionism doesn't focus on those things, on those things that are central to the heart of God. Because perfectionism actually serves a very, very different purpose in our lives. Perfectionism isn't about being good. It's about looking good while we hide our faults. Brene Brown is a research professor who has studied shame and vulnerability for more than a decade. And she says this, Perfectionism is nothing more than a form of armor that we use to protect ourselves from being judged. So here's the secret. When perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun, and fear is the annoying backseat driver. We struggle with perfectionism in areas where we feel, she says, most vulnerable to shame. So we're all comfortable saying, I'm a little bit perfectionistic, which is code for saying, I do some things really, really well. But I'm not comfortable saying, I have shame. But perfectionism, she says, what is that? She says, I call that the 20-ton shield. It's a way of thinking that says this, if I look perfect, if I live perfect, if I work perfect, then I can avoid or minimize criticism, blame, and ridicule. All perfectionism is, is the 20-ton shield that we carry around, hoping that it will keep us from being hurt. And that's exactly what Paul says in verse 6. He says, look at my life. The thing that I thought was so important, he says, I gave myself over to following the law with perfection. So that, what does he say? Nobody could criticize me. 
Nobody could find fault with me. Nobody could judge me. I kept it with perfection. Now to actually get at the things that are close to the heart of God, I have to do the opposite. I have to risk looking bad. I have to become vulnerable to the very rejection that perfectionism is designed to protect me from. Yesterday at uh, our consistory retreat, one of our guest speakers said something like this, to love really well, to love your spouse, to love your neighbor, to love your enemy, to love really well. We have to own and come clean about our own brokenness. Otherwise, our love is really just a self-righteous project to clean other people up. And the problem with perfectionism is that it focuses us on the wrong things for the wrong reasons. So then number two, we can see here the possibility of being imperfectly perfect. Or maybe better, we can see the possibility of being perfectly imperfect. An imperfect life that Paul says is nevertheless worthy of imitation. An imperfect life that is nevertheless worthy of imitation. The secret is found in the word itself. The word in the Greek language that we translate perfection, perfect, is the Greek word telos. And telos uh, specifically means the goal. It means the ends. Uh, it means uh, to be complete. It means to fulfill one's purpose. What is your telos? What is your purpose? And when we are complete, when we are without any sense of need, there's some freedom in that. Nothing left to prove. So when Jesus says, uh, be perfect as God is perfect, he isn't necessarily saying, be morally flawless beginning right now or never make a mistake again beginning right now. What he's saying is, be complete. Be whole. Know that you have everything you need. Know that you lack nothing. Know that there's nothing left for you to earn or deserve or prove. You have nothing to hide. Nothing to fear. When Jesus says, step into your telos, that's what he's telling you. That's what Paul says happens to him. He says, uh, perfection isn't something that I reach out and attain. He says, instead, the perfect is somebody who reaches out and grabs a hold of me. He meets Christ and he's set free from his perfectionism. He experiences Christ. He knows Christ. He gets a taste of the same power, he says, that raised Jesus from the dead. And when that level of perfect embraces Paul, he sees all of his old efforts in a completely different way. In other words, he has a relationship with the one who is completion. He has a relationship with the one who is fulfillment, the one who is the goal. And he knows that he has nothing left to prove and nothing left to hide. And further, he says, Paul sees the completion in Jesus 
that he himself is destined for. He says at the end of our text that Jesus is going to ultimately not only embrace us in the midst of our imperfection, but Jesus is going to take our brokenness and our uh, imperfection and our failures and our shortcomings, and he's going to take all of that and he's going to replace it with his own perfect glory. He says, that's where I'm heading. That's the reality that I'm straining for. That day when I become glorious the way that Jesus is glorious. So knowing that, here's the secret to living perfectly imperfect lives. He says, perfectly imperfect lives are lives that are lived in light of the glory that is your future and not the failure that is your past. He says, I'm forgetting the past and I'm straining forward to what lies ahead. Here's what he means. He says, I keep doing what Jesus made me to do. I keep doing what the telos uh, tells me I'm designed to do, the purpose, the ends, the goal of my life. And I don't let my past failures discourage me from future efforts. Living in the past means that I am controlled by my shame, by fear of failure, by discouragement, by old voices that say you've tried that before and you couldn't do it, don't try it again. Living in the light of my ends, my goal, my completion that is yet to be revealed means that I keep learning, that I keep growing, that I stay committed to stretching. He says like a runner who's running a race. I love Paul's example of a track meet. It reminds me of sitting in the stadium at Dow High School and watching many meets in our high school career. He says, run in such a way that you finish the race. I'm always fascinated by the runners on the track uh, who are the worst of them all. (laughs) I'm always fascinated, uh, not by the winners, but by the ones who know that they will never beat anybody else out there. Uh, The runners who know that they will never win. The runners who know that they will never be in the fastest heat. They know that the last three times they were out on this track, they were lapped by the fastest runners. If runners like that lived in the past, they would say, you know what, I've never won before. I've gotten lapped every time. There is no hope. I'll never be the fastest. I'll never be the winner. I'll never run the perfect race. I give up. But they don't give up. You know why? Because living in perfect imperfection isn't about running a race against the other racers. It's about running a little bit better than my last best time. I'm straining to get to the finish line a little bit stronger, a little bit faster, a little bit better than I did the last time. Now, I've tried to study God's word. I've tried to memorize scripture. I've tried to have devotional times in my life. I've tried to set aside times for spiritual disciplines, and I fail every time. I always get discouraged. That's living in the past. There's something to learn. I'll keep going. I'm not going to give up on hiding God's word in my heart. I've tried to have a prayer life. I try to pray for people. I've tried to be consistent with 
uh, how I talk to God and seeking God's face. And every time I try to pray, I just feel like I'm talking to a brick wall. I feel like I'm talking to thin air. I have no sense of God's presence. I'm not, it's a failure. I'm never going to pray again. It's living in the light of your past failures. Paul says, forget that. Strain forward towards the design that you were intended to fulfill. Somebody told me I should try to build a friendship with somebody who wasn't like me. I should try to have a relationship with somebody who's progressive if I'm conservative, or gay if I'm straight, or male if I'm female. I should have a relationship with somebody who's a Muslim if I'm a Christian. Somebody told me I should have a friendship with somebody who's different than I am. And I tried that once, and it was a disaster. We had nothing in common. It was awkward and stilted, and I didn't like it, and it was a failure. And I'm not going to do that again. That's living in the past. And that's not living in the light of the glory to which you're called. Some of the most courageous people I know are those who suffer from the disease of addiction. Yesterday we heard the statistic that for the average heroin addict, it takes about seven to eight years of trying in order to put together one continuous year of sobriety. That means over and over and over and over, I relapse and I relapse and I relapse. And the difference between an addict who dies of their disease and an addict who recovers is this. I'm not controlled by my last relapse. I'm living in light of the glory to which I'm called. I've tried to control my anger. I can't get a hold of my temper. Every time I read a book, every time I pray, every time I have an accountability group, it just ends in the same way. I guess I'll just be an angry person for the rest of my life. I give up living in the light of my failures. I'm chained to the past. Paul says, live in light of the glory to which you're called. Run the race, my friends. Run the race with perfect imperfection. And don't give up until you reach the prize. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do thank you. We praise you for being our perfection. We thank you for the ways that you come to us and embrace us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our failures, in the midst of the places that we don't get it right, not just once, but countless times. Lord, there are some of us here in the room today that you are inviting to lay down a 20-ton shield of perfectionism that we've been hiding behind. Lord, we want to give up the exhaustion. We want to give up the the uselessness and the futility of that program. And Lord, we want to give ourselves to running the race that you have set out for us. Lord, help us to have your heart for the things that matter most. In Jesus' name, amen.